1: And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything, yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery, Mystery of everything. everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's you here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? And yes, we're still on hiatus, but we're also still bringing you some of our favorite episodes from the back catalog. I am so excited to share with you one of my all-time favorite episodes, Amazon's Warrior Women of Greek Mythology. I love everything about this episode so very much. As I'm sure none of you are surprised about this, I love this episode because it's a mythology heavy episode where I get to nerd out over the epic Warrior Women in Greek myth. We tell you one of my all-time favorite Greek myths in this episode. The story of Atalanta, badass warrior woman, boar slayer, footrace champion, and PDA lioness. In some myths, Atalanta is the only female Argonaut, meaning she went on the quest for the Golden Fleece, and we all know that she probably had to save Jason's ass a few times because Jason really needed a lot of help accomplishing any of his tasks. I know, Jason needed so much help. He needed so much handholding. Atalanta is the big Greek heroine. She's the only one who goes on this big, epic, ancient world journey, this big quest. And for the most part, she's one of the few women warriors we encounter in this way who wasn't an Amazon from the Amazonian homeland of Themiscyra. But we also delve so much deeper into the stories of the women who defied the Greek patriarchy. We tell you about Penthesilia, who fought on the side of Troy during the Trojan War. Hippolyta, who bested Heracles and maybe let him into her bed. Antiope, and that time Heracles and Theseus visited the Amazons. Shocker, Theseus was the worst. He behaved the worst and pretty much started a war because he's the worst.
0: I mean, Heracles didn't behave terrifically either. He was also a giant showed bag. Anytime two guys go to the Amazonian homeland,
1: they always behave poorly and it always starts a war. So maybe dudes... Unless you're invited. No visits.
0: Just take a seat. Just don't go there. They don't want to talk to you. Nobody needs you.
1: Let them come to you.
0: Right. Let the Amazons come to you. Good plan.
1: One of the things I love about this episode is how we got to discuss the stories about these strong heroines and how respected and feared the Amazons were by the ancient Greeks and why these stories were so important. Because they tell us that the ancient Greeks came across female warriors all the time in the cultures they encountered, Scythians, Thracians, maybe even Gauls. And these female warriors were terrifying because they had agency, they had power, and they could take on the male establishment, in theory. I could go on and on, but I want to leave some surprises for you in the episode. So please, enjoy us discussing some badass women of Greek mythology. We'll be back from hiatus on September 2nd. Before then, if you want to keep getting new episodes from us and regular episodes ad-free, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Membership starts at just $2 per month.
0: I warned you that I would quench your thirst for blood, and so I shall. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Jen, what's your favorite Amazon story? Oh my goodness, Danny
1: Williamson. Are you going to let me talk mythology on our history podcast?
0: Yes, I'm asking you to talk about mythology on our history podcast. Guys, I knew this day would come. I knew it. Yay. (laughs) 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 We're totally going to talk about a lot of mythology. So, what's your favorite Amazon story?
1: So, my favorite Amazon story is the story of Atalanta. I guess when I was a kid, I devoured all of the Greek myths at around age 10. That's the kind of nerd I was, guys. But when I was devouring these myths there weren't a lot of proactive females and atalanta was the first female who i saw who had her own agency and did her own stuff there was ariadne who was super clever and helped theseus defeat the minotaur but she still needed to be rescued then there's medusa who everyone thinks of as a monster but who didn't start her life out that way
0: Yeah, she basically just get sexually assaulted and then things went downhill from there. Then there's Cassandra, who uh, doesn't want to get it on with a
1: god and winds up being cursed to predict the future and have no one believe her.
0: Yeah, Cassandra, who nobody listens to. There's all these women in the canon who are in these terrible positions. But Atalanta is a strong, fearless warrior. And that is so refreshing. If you're just you're a girl, you're like 10 years old, and you're just hungry for that kind of representation. Absolutely. I was totally like, a tomboy at 10 like atalanta was my idol we're ordinarily a podcast about history um augmented by mythology when it fits but we're also serious mythology fans jen in particular is a big time mythology nerd um (laughs) which i love about you you know a lot more about mythology than i do (laughs) i
1: know my husband will sometimes try and stump me and ask me something that i don't know the answer to and then i will either be like incredibly frustrated or like how did I miss this?
0: Yeah, but let's be honest, usually you know the answer. Yeah, I mean. So, we're devoting the next three episodes to the epic story of the Amazons. And in this first installment, we'll be talking about some well known Amazon stories from the Greek canon, which means this episode will be a lot more mythology focused than most of our other episodes.
1: However, we're going to go into the historical context of these myths and take an in depth look at how real women were treated in ancient Greece. So, we're not neglecting the historical here. And the next two episodes in this Series will be a lot more history focused.
0: Yeah, just a heads up, by the way, there are many different versions of most of these myths that we're going to tell you. And in most cases, we had to pick one to go with, but we're well aware that these stories have been told in different ways at different times by different ancient writers. And we're going to start off with Jen's favorite Amazon, Atalanta.
1: So when Atalanta was born, her father was deeply disappointed because she was a girl and he was hoping for a boy. He only wanted boys. And so he left his newborn daughter on a mountain to die of exposure. Father of the year. Oh yeah. But Atalanta didn't die. A mother bear found her and raised her as one of her cubs. Atalanta learned to fight, wrestle and hunt like a bear. And she spent a wildly idyllic, tomboyish childhood doing all of these things. And I like to imagine
0: sleeping in a pile with her bear cub siblings. That is so cute. I wonder if she hibernated with them. I bet she did. That's like adorable bear pile.
1: So Atalanta was strong, athletic, independent Jenny, and more than a little bit dangerous.
0: Yeah, so that was how Atalanta spent her childhood, like a total badass tomboy. Also But as a young woman, she was brought back to civilization by her love for the hero Meliager. He was, by some accounts, a son of the war god Ares, and he was already married, but he set aside his young, pretty wife to be with Atalanta.
1: These two were head over heels for each other but they couldn't consummate their relationship because an oracle had warned Atalanta not to lose her virginity or dire things would happen.
0: I just have to wonder what dire things like pregnancy. I don't know, maybe like ancient world
1: STDs. I know there was a lot of syphilis in ancient Rome.
0: Yeah. So she basically she just went to health
1: class (laughs) pretty much. And health class said, look, there's a lot of Greek heroes going around. There's a lot of women they're getting with. Do not. There are a whole lot of Greek heroes running around with STDs. There are no magic dicks, only spotted dicks. And you know, what that means right a lot of <laughs> spotted dicks <laughs> <laughs> In disappointment, Meliager joined Jason and the Argonauts on the quest for the Golden Fleece. But Atalanta was not having this. She leapt onto the Argo just as it set sail, and throughout the journey, she distinguished herself heroically as the only female badass Argonaut.
0: In the Apollonius of Rhodes version, Jason didn't let her on the boat because he thought her presence would cause conflict among the other crew members, but we are not listening to his version because it's lame. It is lame. Sit down, Apollonius of Rhodes. You do not get to tell this story. (laughs) Later on, after the Golden Fleece adventure, some king forgot to sacrifice to Artemis. So Artemis sent the monstrous Caledonian boar to ravage the countryside. Meliager summoned a team of heroes to kill the boar, and one of those, once again, the only female member, was Atalanta.
1: Atalanta was the first to draw blood on the boar, beating out a who's who of other renowned heroes to do it. Meliager was the one who actually dealt the death blow, but he awarded the hide to Atalanta for her bravery. And this caused a lot of resentment. Mili had to kill a few people for insulting Atalanta, including some of his relatives, and his own mother wound up killing him by burning a magic log. And guys, just don't ask. It's a long story.
0: So... After leaving her to die on a mountain in infancy, and then being completely indifferent to her existence for most of her life, Atalanta's father, King Iassos, sat up and noticed he had an unmarried daughter running around, and oh, hello, he didn't have any other heirs. (laughs) Surprise! (laughs) Surprise! This is what you get when you're father of the year. So he called her home and insisted that she get married, and Atalanta was Really not into this, but for some reason had a hard time just giving her dad a hard no. Boundary problem, Atalanta.
1: Yeah, you need to set them clear and you need to set them firm.
0: Yeah, so she told her father that she would marry only the man who could beat her in a foot race. She agreed to be totally generous about this. She'd even give each man a head start. The only catch was that losers would be taken out back and shot. So she probably just put that in there so that nobody would really have the guts to try. So this was a pretty
1: tall penalty for losing, but a lot of guys signed up anyway, because again, toxic toxic masculinity,
0: masculinity. (laughs) right? They thought that they could beat a girl anyway. I mean, of course.
1: All of them died in the attempt until a young man named Hippomenes, realizing he could never beat Atalanta in an outright race, asked the goddess Aphrodite for a little special help. Aphrodite gave him three irresistible golden apples. These were the kind of apples, Jenny, that they're just, they're everything in the entire world you ever wanted.
0: Yeah. So I feel like the golden apples, these show up in other parts of mythology too. And my imagination just kind of ran with this where it's like, okay, the golden apple has to be different things to different people, right? For me, it would be like, I don't know, uh, a massive romance book deal and the love of my life and an amazing podcast, which I basically already have. and like Everything. I've ever wanted in the shape of an apple. And I feel like if somebody was in a foot race with me and they dropped that in front of me, I'd be like, oh my God, why am I running this race? I have to get this apple. All of those things sound amazing, Jenny, but
1: let's be honest. For me, it probably just has to be a golden apple because I mean, it's a golden apple. It's shiny. I love shiny things.
0: Yeah, you're just like, it just has to be a golden apple for me. I don't
1: know. Maybe I'm a magpie and I just like take it back to my nest.
0: Like really, it could be gold foil.
1: <laughs>
0: Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so basically, for me, it's like ambition, everything you ever wanted. For Jen, it's like shiny. <laughs> I mean, pretty much. Not that
1: I'm not ambitious and don't want things, but shiny.
0: <laughs> what happens next? Aphrodite gave him these three irresistible golden apples, which might be everything you ever wanted in apple form, and they might just be shiny.
1: Hippomenes used these golden apples to slow Atalanta down. Every time it looked like she was winning the race, he'd drop an apple and she was completely compelled to go after it. Ooh, Shiny. Ooh, shiny or ooh, everything I've ever wanted in an apple shape. Yes, please. Finally, Hippomenes won the foot race and he got to marry Atalanta.
0: And even though he cheated to win, total cheater. Total cheater. But this was not an unhappy relationship. Hippomenes and Atalanta were actually one of those super annoying PDA couples. They were both in the prime of their lives and they spent their days running around the forest, hunting and adventuring and having vigorous athletic sex. Atalanta totally broke her mandate not to lose her virginity. And, you know, things would have continued that way until one time
1: these two broke into the temple of Sybil, an ancient Phrygian goddess strongly associated with the Amazons, and they had sex in her temple. Now, some of you might think that the Sybil would be cool with that since she was a fertility goddess and everything, but no, Sybil wasn't cool with it. She changed the couple into a pair of lions.
0: So incidentally, I read somewhere that the ancient Greeks believed that lions couldn't have sex with each other. So this was supposed to be this really perverse punishment where Atalanta and Hippomenes didn't get to have sex with each other anymore. But the ancient Greeks were a little spotty on their biology. And in this case, they were wrong. So jokes on them. (laughs) And I like to think of these two continuing to hunt and bang and be fabulous as a pair of beautiful lions.
1: I mean, that's what I like to think.
0: Right, so let's just assume that that's the end of the story and it's actually kind of a happy ending. As a Leo, what better ending could you have than to
1: be a lion?
0: Right, lions are amazing. So this was a big story in ancient Greece, the story of Atalanta. Adrian Mayer, who wrote the book Amazons, Lives and Legends of Warrior Women Across the Ancient World, which we rely on a lot in this in the upcoming episodes, tells us that Atalanta's racetrack was a well-known tourist destination well into the Roman Empire, and there was a temple in Tigeia, Atalanta's birthplace. Where a pair of monstrous tusks, said to be those of the Caledonian boar itself, were displayed. The writer Pausanias reports that the tusks were approximately half a fathom long, or about three feet. He claimed the boar's hide was also on display, quote, rotted by age and now altogether without bristles. And this was writing in the second century AD. So it, it was already pretty old by the time he got to it. And the interesting thing was that this temple was actually found in the 1880s. Archaeologists found gorgeous friezes and statues depicting Atalanta and the boar hunt, as well as an all strewn with boar's tusks. Yeah, we got to go to that temple. And see the boar's tusks. Yeah. And the freezes and everything else. We have to go. And the rotted by age hide that is altogether without bristles. It's probably not there anymore. It's
1: probably not there. Moving on.
0: Moving on. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.
1: I'm Helena Bonham-Carter, and
0: for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's
1: top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So Jenny, the next story we're going to talk about is the Daughters of Ares. According to the Greek historian Diodorus, writing sometime between 60 and 30 BC, a great nation of fighting women rose up in the land of Scythia. He says that, quote, once organized, it was so distinguished for its manly prowess that it not only overran much of the neighboring territory, but even subdued a large part of Europe and Asia.
0: Manly prowess, but this was a nation of fighting women, and these women accomplished many brave feats. Diodorus tells us that, quote, when Cyrus, the king of the Persians, the mightiest ruler of his day, made a campaign with a vast army into Scythia, the queen of the Scythians not only cut the army of the Persians into pieces, but she also captured Cyrus and crucified him.
1: At one point, a singular woman rose to prominence among the people near the Thermodon River, somewhere in modern-day Turkey. In this society, it was customary for women to fight alongside the men, but this woman wanted to dominate both her neighbors and the men in her own tribe. So, this woman assembled an army of warrior women, shaped them into an elite fighting force, and established laws that codified rigid gender roles into society. The men were tasked with spinning wool and looking after the home, while the women rode off to war.
0: In this society, mothers injured the legs and arms of boy children and seared off one breast on the girl children so it wouldn't get in the way of spear-throwing and archery. Diodorus says that, quote, laws were established by her, by virtue of which she led the women out into the contests of war, but upon the men she fastened humiliation and slavery. And as her fame and success grew, this supreme Amazon leader began calling herself the daughter of Ares. She founded a great nation on the banks of the Thermodon River. Its capital was a city named the Misra, And this is the root of one major Amazon myth in Greek society, that of an organized nation of bloodthirsty, man-hating, one-breasted warrior women.
1: The story of the Amazon nation based in Themisra is mythical, but part of the story actually kind of tracks. Diodorus mentioned one of these warrior queens killing Cyrus, king of the Persians, in crucifixional fashion after he invaded her territory. Cyrus the Great was a real person. He ruled Persia from 559 to 530 BC. There are a lot of conflicting stories surrounding his death. The most boring was that he died of old age in his bed. I mean, snooze.
0: I know. (laughs) Pull it together, Cyrus. Give us an epic death.
1: Anyway, one of the more colorful versions of his death involves an Amazon queen named Tamiris. She was queen of the Massenghetti, a nomadic Iranian steppe archer tribe in Scythian tradition.
0: According to this legend, Cyrus of Persia first proposed marriage to Tamiris, and when she refused him, he invaded. Jerk, move huge jerk move right also a huge mistake because tamiris wiped the floor with his army cut off cyrus's head crucified his headless body and dipped his severed head in a vat of blood saying quote i warned you that i would quench your thirst for blood and so i shall
1: damn straight so we're moving on from there jenny I don't know how you would top that, but (laughs) (laughs) I think we're gonna do it though. A number of generations after the daughter of Ares founded the Amazon Nation, a woman named Hippolyta became its queen.
0: And her name incidentally means releases the horses, which I just think is so cool. We got that detail from Adrian Mayer, whose book had a lot of really cool poetic translations of Amazon names. It's the first place I've seen where someone tells us what these names mean. So we'll be giving you these translations whenever they crop up because they are so so cool.
1: Anyway, Hippolyta owned the girdle of Ares, a beautiful golden belt that signified her rank as queen. And Admete, daughter of King Eurystheus, coveted this belt hard. She'd do anything to get it, Jenny. It had to be in her Coachella lineup.
0: Yeah, and that's really weird because she's not even an Amazon, so why does she want this belt? I don't know. Wouldn't have done her any good. I mean, cultural appropriation, you know? Come on, Admete. It's not cool. Not okay. <laughs> So King Eurystheus called
1: in Heracles, who was uh, kind of his servant during the period of the 12 labors of Hercules.
0: King Eurystheus had Heracles on call for a whole host of reasons that we're not going to get into here because it's not Heracles' story. But anyway, so Heracles, for some reason, had to go after this belt.
1: (laughs) This was actually the ninth labor of Heracles, and it was a pretty daunting one. The Amazons were a nation of unmatched warriors, and Hippolyta was both their queen and the top fighting champion. Heracles was anticipating an epic battle.
0: So when Heracles arrived in Hippolyta's realm, however, he was warmly welcomed. Hippolyta invited Heracles into her tent, gave him wine and refreshment, and the two of them sized each other up, if you know what I mean. Hippolyta (laughs) (laughs) Hippolyta recognized Heracles as a fellow champion, noticed his great pecs. Mm -hmm. He had to have had great pecs. He's Heracles. He's basically known for being built. Is that not the myth? Absolutely.
1: There's a movie wherein Dwayne the Rock Johnson plays... Hercules.
0: And I kind of feel like that would be... <laughs> and that's something really the perfect casting. Yeah,
1: perfect casting. We'll put a link to it in the show notes.
0: Right. So picture Dwayne the Rock Johnson here when we talk about Heracles, because I just have a massive crush on him. So Her- <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> He's so dreamy. So Heracles noticed Hippolyta right back. Friendly conversation ensued. Maybe some simmering sexual tension underneath. A hint of little romantic interest between equals and in the midst of this, Hippolyta offered to just give Heracles her belt.
1: Yeah, I just, I kind of feel like I don't know if i buy that, Jenny. Why would she do that?
0: I mean, that's what the story is. I don't know if i buy it either, but what do you think is up with that? Maybe it's just about, like, how
1: much cooler Amazons were than regular people that they'd just be like, hey, all right, you need to borrow my belt, just bring it back, you know, shine it.
0: Maybe it's like a -a one-of-a-kind belt, but Hippolyta is the reigning champion and she could just go and win another one.
1: I guess, but it's some God made belt. Like, I don't know. That always struck me as weird. I guess like you're supposed to believe maybe that she's more enlightened or she was just lending it to Heracles. who would bring it back to her at some point in time.
0: Maybe she was mesmerized by his pecs. Oh, well, I mean, if it's Dwayne
1: the Rock Johnson, how could you not be?
0: I'd give Dwayne the Rock Johnson my belt. <laughs> <laughs> if he wanted my belt, I'd just give it to him. Let's be real. <laughs> it's like, sure. Are there any other accessories you would like to borrow Dwayne the Rock Johnson? I also have some purses. (laughs) I have some feathered earrings. Like, let me know. (laughs) Yeah, I have some earrings. I have some jewelry. I've got, you know, like, (laughs) I've got a shark necklace. What can I give you Dwayne? I've got some high heeled shoes. I mean, just, you know, hit me up. My accessories are your accessories. (laughs)
1: Okay. So, so this, this gifting of the belt was not entertaining enough for the warring gods. The goddess Hera, who was Heracles' arch enemy, she wanted to see a fight. She disguised herself as one of Hippolyta's Amazons and shouted that Heracles was trying to kidnap their queen. Hippolyta's own Amazon warriors flooded into her camp, trying to protect her. Heracles, thinking the Amazons had betrayed him, turned on a dime, going from Sexual tension, Heracles, to Homicidal Heracles. Ugh.
0: Gross. So <laughs> <laughs> So Homicidalness is gross, Heracles. I know. Just stay in your sexual tension phase. All we ask is that you try not to solve problems with violence. Although it's Heracles, so that might be too much to ask. All we ask is that when you're trying to solve problems, you put down your sword. Or club. Can't a club. So he just basically whacked things really hard. An epic battle ensued in which Heracles single-handedly mortally wounded or killed a dozen Amazons. Diodorus gives us an action-packed account of the hand-to-hand combat with the names and some of the background of each Amazon. And Adrian Mayer joins in with translations of Amazon names, which I just have to include here where I saw them because each one just adds such a great dimension of character to these Amazons. So strap in, you guys, here is how this battle went. Quote, Now the general mass of the Amazons were arrayed against the main body of the followers of Heracles, but the most honored of the women were drawn up opposite Heracles himself and put up a stubborn battle. The first, for instance, to join battle with him was Aella, which means whirlwind, who had been given this name because of her swiftness, but she found her opponent more agile than herself. The second, Philippus, which means loves horses, encountering a mortal blow at the very first conflict was slain. Then he joined battle with Prothoe, first in might, who they said had been victorious seven times over the opponents whom she had challenged. In battle. When she fell, the fourth whom he overcame was known as Ereboa. She had boasted that because of the manly bravery which she displayed in contests of war, she had no need of anyone to help her, but she found her claim was false when she encountered her better. And here I just have to eye roll. So self aggrandizing, Heracles. Ah, so much side eye. I know. The next, Seliano, Eurybia, and Phoebe, who were companions of Artemis in the hunt and whose spears found their mark invariably, did not even graze the single target, but In that fight, they were one and all, cut down as they stood shoulder to shoulder with each other. After them, Dianera, Asteria, and Marpe, and Tecmesa and El were overcome. The last name had taken a vow to remain a maiden, and the vow she kept, but her life she could not preserve. The commander of the Amazons, Melanipe, the Black Mare, what a great name! (laughs) That's such a great name! (laughs) Gotta name a character in a story somewhere, the Black Mare, who was also greatly admired for her manly courage, now lost her supremacy. And Heracles, after thus being a chode and killing the most renowned (laughs) of the Amazons and forcing the remaining multitude to turn in flight, cut down the greater number of them so that the race of them was utterly exterminated. End quote. And what you may notice here, and maybe even be a little bit uncomfortable with, is how many women are dying at Heracles' hands. It's not a good look for him. This is the kind of
1: thing the gods punished you for last time, Heracles. Get your shit together.
0: But these are, he believes, his deadly enemies and worthy foes for any man. And this is the thing where it's like, on the one hand, violence against women is bad. I believe that. But on the other hand, what's refreshing about the Amazon stories is that you're not seeing anyone going, oh, I can't fight you, or I'm going to go easy on you because you are a woman.
1: Yeah, it's one of the amazing times in mythology that you see them as being equal opponents and they're not equal because the gods have gifted them something. They're equal because they've trained hard and they are good enough warriors.
0: Right. They're just badass. Absolutely.
1: Meanwhile, on the beach, Hippolytus' sister, Antiope, which means opposing gaze... What a cool name. I know. ...was locked in hand-to-hand combat with Theseus, the mythical founding hero king of Athens, who'd tagged along with Heracles on this journey.
0: He's the grossest, you guys, for various reasons. Go home, Theseus. Nobody wants you on the boat. Anyway...
1: (laughs) Theseus defeated Antiope and he and Heracles sailed off with Apollo's belt, the defeated Antiope, and a hold full of Amazon captives even though Diodorus tells us they were exterminated. There's a big plot hole in these myths, so don't look too closely. This story is an ancient one. It may be featured in the oldest Amazon artwork ever found, a small terracotta shield that dates from around 700 BC, depicting five people, two pairs of male and female warriors fighting, and one male warrior lying on the ground. Historians aren't 100% sure it's Apollon and Heracles, but the shield was found in Tyrans, Heracles' mythic home and the kingdom of the legendary King Eurystheus. So that's a clue.
0: Yeah, we got that detail from Adrian Mayer, who is awesome.
1: Yeah, we love Adrienne Mayer. Like, oh, she's just, she's incredible. If she listens to our podcast... We'd love to interview you one
0: day, could we? It's like John Kistler in The War Elephant. She's basically the Amazon goddess.
1: She's totally the Amazon goddess and also the Mithridates goddess, but we haven't got him yet.
0: Yeah, we'll get to him, I hope. Mm -hmm. Um, So the next one is my favorite story, and that is the Sarmatian Romance, because I'm a romance novelist and I love love stories. So, at
1: the end of the Heracles and Apollotus story, Heracles and his friends sail off with a bunch of Amazon war prisoners tied up in the hold of their ships. Oh, I can't.
0: We we do not approve of mass kidnappings of women. Also, I thought they were exterminated, but apparently now they're all tied up in the hold. I don't know.
1: So, Jenny, what happened to them? According to Herodotus, some were out at sea. The Amazons, being badasses escaped their imprisonment, killed the Greek crews, and took command of those ships.
0: Sounds badass, right? Right. Yeah, but the Amazons were nomadic horse archers, not sailors, and they just killed everyone on the boat who knew how to sail. Oops. Oops. (laughs) (laughs) So they drifted around the Sea of Azov, which is the shallowest sea in the world, but still deep enough to drown in, until they ran aground on its north shore in Moesia, the land of the free Scythians.
1: The Amazons hopped off the boat and immediately traveled inland. They'd had enough of the sea, and I can't blame them. They
0: were done with the sea, yeah. No
1: more sea. They came across a herd of horses, and this was more the kind of ride that the Amazons had in mind. They stole the horses and galloped off to raid and pillage because they were badass land pirates. The Scythians, already living in the area, were baffled by these new raiders who'd suddenly burst onto their planes, galloping around and stealing their stuff and generally being land pirates.
0: I mean, land pirates gonna land pirate. Sorry,
1: not sorry. (laughs) They didn't recognize the newcomer's speech or style of dress and had no idea where they'd come from. At first, everyone assumed they were young, violent boys, you know, no beards and all. But after a few battles, the Scythians got a look at some of the dead and discovered, to their astonishment, that these fierce warriors were women.
0: The Scythians deliberated. See, this particular tribe came from a proud warrior nomad tradition themselves. But over the years, they'd become settled and their women accustomed to a soft life, living in wagons, I don't know, churning butter and not going out to raven pillage. So they figured it was time for some new, vigorous blood, and they wanted these raiders for wives. They decided that instead of fighting the women, they'd try to convince them to join their tribe and have their babies.
1: You know, on the spectrum of careers, either churn butter or become a land pirate, I would totally rather be a land pirate.
0: I know! I mean, what kind of choice is this? Like, yeah, geez, I really want to have your babies and live in your tents and never leave. I mean, for
1: some women, that is a great career option, but I'm all about land pirating, guys. Some women are land
0: pirates, that's all. And that's good, too.
1: Women got a pirate.
0: Yeah, a land pirate's going to land
1: pirate. Nothing
0: you can do about it.
1: A group of the tribe's youngest and handsomest men went out to meet the Amazons. They established their camp near the women and basically operated like you do when you're setting out to get close to a wild animal, which I'm not sure I'm okay with, Jenny.
0: Treating women like wild animals? Well, quite. (laughs) Why wouldn't she be okay with that? (laughs) (laughs) This sounds fine to me.
1: Oh, ancient world. Yeah. (laughs) So these men camped a distance away and got a little closer each day. When the Amazons chased them, they ran away. They didn't fight, but they always kept returning. And every morning when the Amazons woke up, the men's camp had inched just that little bit nearer.
0: That is so awkward. I mean, it's just like they wake up and they're like, wait a second. Was this camp closer? This would make me crazy. Don't you think so, Jen? Yeah,
1: it sounds like ancient world gaslight.
0: (laughs) Total gaslight. I'd be like whipping out my ruler and being like, no, you guys, I swear it was like a foot closer than it was last night. (laughs) One day, a Scythian man came upon an Amazon woman alone. The two did not speak the same language, but they communicated using hand signals. And that hand signal conversation must have been awesome because these two wound up having sex. And then the woman invited the man to come back the next day and bring a friend. And she promised to bring one too. The
1: next day, the Scythian warrior came back with a friend and met his Amazon paramour and her friend. And the two groups paired off quickly after that. And soon the men and women had combined camps and were living as equals, hunting and raiding and land pirating together. So eventually the women learned the men's language. The men, astonishingly, were never able to learn theirs.
0: I just think that there's something to be said about the emotional labor expectation here. The women learned the men's language, but the men didn't bother to learn the women's language. Yeah. Yeah,
1: it really deeply upsets me. Make
0: an effort, guys. Like these badass woman warrior land pirates are overlooking the whole gaslighting thing and letting you join their camp. You should be so thankful that you're bending over backwards to learn their language, like just as a baseline.
1: They really didn't show up very well, did they?
0: Yeah. So anyway, so eventually the men made a suggestion. How about you come back to our village and live in our wagons and have our babies? And this is the point where I get super ragey because the typical story is that the wild woman is tamed, leashed to home and hearth, and find joy in raising children and providing for a family where she once used to raid and ride at will. I feel like that's the trope. Have you, like, am I insane? Am I gaslighting myself, Jen? Like, that's a trope I hear a lot, right?
1: Yeah, it's a trope I I see a lot in mythology, and you see it a lot in in different places in fiction, and it does actually make me really, really ragey.
0: Yeah, it, it makes me, like, viscerally angry. And I'm not saying that to impugn the choices of individual women who decide to focus on kids. It's totally fine to do whatever you feel called to do in life. But I just feel like hearing that story repeated again and again, just making a blanket statement about how this is the um, the appropriate fate of every woman. I don't think that's how I would want to do it.
1: But the woman in this story gave the suggestion a hard pass. They pointed out that, quote from Herodotus, We could not live with your women, for we do not have the same customs. We shoot the bow and throw the javelin and ride, but have never learned women's work. And your women do none of the things which we speak, but stay in their wagons and do women's work and do not go out hunting or anywhere else. They said, if you want us to be your wives, you have to live as we do hunting, raiding, and pillaging, free on the step like we are. And you know what? The men went for it. Yeah, I can see why this is your favorite romance story.
0: That's exactly why I love this story because the women didn't have to make themselves lesser to be with these men. Like, they didn't have to be tamed in order to have love. I think that's what I love about this story. There's so much in this trope about the woman has to be tamed and she has to be an adjunct of the man to really be in love. And I just hate that narrative. Well, I also think
1: like I, I shy away from the word tamed because I feel like that makes them sound like they're wild. And actually, it's like the idea that they are wild women who don't have their own society or their own culture when actually they're just other to this culture and their society and culture functions and works really well. Rather than allowing themselves to be a part of a culture where they won't function in a way that they feel is fulfilling, they bring these men into their culture and they give them a role in their society. And that's what's refreshing.
0: Instead of letting the men dictate the terms, Yes,
1: they actually enveloped these men into their society and made room in their culture for them, which is something you never see in mythology and don't see enough in stories. That's
0: what I love about this story so much. It's the women setting the terms.
1: Yeah. And what I like about the fact that women set the terms is that the men are like, okay, and they go into the society wherein they will be equals.
0: Yeah. So anyway, this group lived happily ever after, and this seed population became the Sarmatians, a group of real Iranian tribes well known at the time, originally from the central Eurasian steppes. Herodotus notes that the Sarmatians raised boys and girls alike to ride and wield bow and spear from a young age, and both genders wore the same clothes. He also says that the girls weren't allowed to marry until they'd killed their first man, and some never married because they never killed. So
1: this version of the story is from Herodotus, and it's about 2,500 years old. And we've spoken before about how you have to take the ancient sources with, you know, a giant salt lick or the Dead Sea.
0: Right, maybe the Dead Sea. Take them with the Dead Sea worth of salt.
1: <laughs> but Herodotus was one of the more reliable in his time. He's the first historian we know of who systematically investigated his subjects looked at his evidence critically, and interviewed the people he wrote about.
0: So there is a high possibility that this is not a Greek-originating myth, and the cool thing is that seeds of this story can be found in areas deep in Scythian and Sarmatian territory, unconnected to the Greeks.
1: According to Adrian Mayer, in the Caucasus, an area where both Scythians and Sarmatians once lived, ancient folktales, passed down in oral tradition have always featured strong warrior women similar to the Greeks' Amazons. Mayer tells us that Jacob Reineggs, a German traveler who lived in the 1700s, voyaged to this region and collected folk tales from local people about their tribal origins. One such tale was that of the Emmet, probably a Germanized version of a name in a local language. This was a tribe of warrior women who were supposedly the first inhabitants of the region. Mayer tells us the name means those who did not leave.
0: The M.H. women were at war with another local tribe led by men, and they fought viciously until the leader of the women requested a meeting with the male leader of the opposing tribe. The two disappeared into a tent for several hours, and when they emerged they announced that they decided to marry instead of fight, and they expected their two armies to pair up and do the same. The two armies immediately obeyed and seem pretty happy about it on both sides i mean i think
1: i'd definitely rather make love than fight right
0: they're just like all right well you know we've we've done our wrestling now let's do some wrestling
1: I mean, that tracks, Jenny. That tracks. Right? I mean, I,
0: I can see how, I can see the attraction as well.
1: So this story isn't exactly the same, but it contains similar threads, that of a large group of men and one of women, once at war or raiding each other, eventually making peace by pairing off in marriage. It's possible that both versions of the tale are based on something that happened far back in the ancient past, when a group of displaced warriors, mostly women, met up with fought and eventually intermarried with a group of male warriors to create a new tribe.
0: The next story that we're going to talk about is Antiope and the battle for Athens. So the Amazons in the hold found both freedom and love. But what happened to Antiope, Hippolytus' sister? Remember her? She was the one fighting on the beach with Theseus, who is probably the grossest of the Greek heroes.
1: Could we not call him a hero?
0: I'm calling him a hero because I guess he's technically a hero, but he's not particularly heroic. He does a lot of kidnapping women and sexual assault and stuff. Her fate was the opposite. She got neither freedom nor love. In the end of the Hippolytus story, her sister Antiope gets kidnapped by Theseus, Heracles' buddy, where it's just like, Heracles, could you please not invite this guy to the party? He makes me super uncomfortable. Ugh.
1: He's a turd in the punch bowl.
0: I know, but Heracles keeps inviting this dude. Why?
1: I don't know. I think Heracles is lonely also. Who wants to hang out with Heracles? He goes crazy and kills you.
0: Yeah, maybe Theseus is the only guy who'll actually hang out with him. (laughs) From there, the story of Antiope splinters into many different scenarios.
1: One of the common threads in the Amazon stories is that the amazons will have nothing to do with the traditional greek marriage. Antiope is the only amazon in legend to ever make a transition from her amazon roots to a greek domestic life, and this is not a happy transition. In some versions, Antiope is unwillingly carried off by Theseus, and this is totally something Theseus would do because he's the worst. He's the worst. Adrian Mayer describes him as, quote, a serial sexual predator, and Plutarch, in his Lives of Theseus, claims that Theseus raped Helen of Troy when he was 50, and she was, quote, not yet marriageable age. And guys, that must have been really young because the ancient Greeks married off their girls as young as seven. And just, oh. So
0: I've seen in different accounts that Helen of Troy was 10. I mean, not that that's any better, but when I was reading Plutarch, what I was seeing was just not a specific age so much as not yet marriageable age. And I was just like, okay, how young does this poor kid have to be before the ancient Greeks don't think she's of marriageable age because they married them off really, really young. They did. It, oh. Horrible story. Theseus is the worst. In other versions, Antiope fell in love with Theseus for some reason eye roll, betrayed her Amazon sisters and followed him back to Athens willingly. Either way, she stayed with Theseus and had a son with him whose name was Hippolytus. But the Amazons who survived Heracles' attack were furious over the abduction of one of their own, and they were also still pretty mad about the belt. So this is a version of the story where they were not exterminated and they were not all put in the hold. There were still some left over there and they were pissed off. So the new queen of the Amazons, Erythia, led an invasion of Athens.
1: This war raged for months with fighting in the streets of Athens and in the uneven hilly terrain around the city. This terrain would have been very difficult for the Greeks who were used to fighting on flat ground. Ancient artists made a point of depicting the hilly, rocky terrain the Greeks had to fight on. Ancient writers and artists depict scenes of chaos, streets and hillsides littered with corpses, arrows flying everywhere, and Greek soldiers locked in life and death combat with warrior women.
0: The Greeks did eventually gain the upper hand. Big surprise, because it's the Greeks telling this story. Eye roll. (laughs) And Antiope put aside her spindle and took up arms again. In most depictions, she fights on Theseus' side. In a few, she fights against him. In some accounts, she dies in the battle. In others, she negotiates a truce and winds up back with Theseus. And did this actually happen... The ancient Greeks believed it did. They thought this was history. The ancient sources include accounts of the battle that are rife with city landmarks that Athenians would have recognized. The Lyceum, the Palladium, the Acropolis, the Hill of the Nymphs. And writers like Diodorus and Plutarch seriously debated the route the Amazons must have taken on their way to Athens.
1: Plutarch, in his Life of Theseus, says, quote, The fact that the Amazons encamped almost in the heart of the city is attested by the names of the localities there and by the graves of those who fell in battle. He points to actual graves, quote, The graves of those who fell are on either side of the street, which leads to the gate by the chapel of Chalcedon? Interestingly, there are graves along that road. According to Adrian Mayer, these burials date from around 1050 to 900 BC, extremely ancient, even by ancient Greek standards it's possible that the Greeks forgot the true stories of these graves and built up a legend around them, that these were the graves of the fallen Athenians killed by the Amazons. This wasn't unusual. The ancient Greeks sometimes did invent mythical origins for the ancient Mycenaean graves when they came upon them. But
0: despite this evidence, quote-unquote, the Battle of Athens was mythical. The earliest account of it comes from a play by Aeschylus in 458 BC. Scythian horse archers, whom Amazons were strongly associated with and who the Amazons' Allied themselves with in this story did overrun parts of Thrace, Anatolia, and other areas that touched on the Greek sphere. Despite this, however, there's no real archaeological evidence of an attack by a Scythian horse archer society on Athens itself.
1: What happened to Antiope after the Battle of Athens? Some accounts of Antiope's life say she died in battle and other accounts she threw herself in front of a spear meant for her husband. Just
0: let him get speared, Antiope. (laughs) Antiope,
1: you are doing the world a service if he gets speared. And yet in other versions, she survived, but the ending unfortunately isn't a happy one because Theseus is the worst. In the version where Antiope survives, Theseus didn't stay faithful to her. He discarded her for Phaedra, the daughter of King Minos, the guy who imprisoned the Minotaur. Antiope vowed to kill everyone at Theseus' wedding to Phaedra, and Theseus murdered her himself before she could carry out that
0: threat. The answer to murder is not murder Theseus.
1: I mean, he was a friend of Heracles, so I'm not surprised by this. The
0: next one and last one we're going to talk about is Penthesilia. Queen Hippolyta had another sister as well, Penthesilia. And in her timeline, she's on a totally different timeline than a lot of these. Heracles didn't kill Hippolyta at all. Penthesilia did in an unfortunate hunting accident. Penthesilia was so grieved by this that she just wanted to die, but Honor demanded that she be killed in battle. Her name incidentally is an amalgamation of Greek words for grief, misery, suffering, and mourning, according to Mayer. So she enlisted in the Trojan War.
1: And that's kind of why she has to be on a different timeline, because the Trojan War is so far after these events. Right. Penthesilia fought on the Trojan side, defending the city against the Greeks. She shared up just after Hector's ignoble death at the hands of Achilles, with 12 of her Amazon sisters in tow, all fearless and renowned in battle. Quote, hot for war and battle grim, far famous each, yet handmaidens unto her. And that's from Quintus Smyrnius, The Fall of Troy. King Priam welcomed her with a lavish feast and showered her with gifts, and she made an incredible impression on the dispirited soldiers of Troy. Poor Trojans, they were having a rough, rough time.
0: Well, they were really disheartened because Hector, a breaker of horses, had just kicked it. I know he'd gone tits up, and that was bad.
1: He'd gone tits up in a very epic fashion.
0: Right, the tits were up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so this is another quote from Quintus to write to left, from all sides, hurrying thronged the Trojans. Hurrying thronged? Why does he have to say it like
0: that? God. He just says it that way. Just go with it.
1: fine. Yeah, we've got given level. Greatly marveling when they saw the tireless war god's child, the mailed maid, like to the blessed gods, for in her face glowed beauty glorious and terrible. Her smile was ravishing. Beneath her brows her love and kindling eyes shone like to stars, and with the crimson rose of shamefastness, bright were her cheeks and mantled over them unearthly grace with battle prowess clad.
0: That is some serious Gibbon level purple waxing. And that was actually hard
1: to read. (laughs)
0: Yeah, but I I put it in there because I wanted you guys to see what an incredible impression Penthesilia made on the downtrodden troops of Troy. Here she is. She's really good looking. She's really warlike and powerful. And everyone is just completely enamored with her and her entourage. So... Penthesilia showed up and just knocked everyone off their feet and she vowed to kill Achilles and the next day she set off into battle. Quintus spends a lot of time describing her armor and we're not going to read it here because you've already seen what reading Quintus is like, but we're just going to reassure you that he lavishly describes her battle axe, javelins, a double-edged halberd and a shield among other weapons and armor. And I think that's actually pretty cool because a lot of the time male heroes get this kind of, you know, lengthy adoring description of the armor and this time a woman hero gets it which I like
1: that does happen a lot in, in the Odyssey it's very much in that style like they name all the ships and they tell you where the history of all the armor which is like a long list of everyone's fighting good
0: right but it's usually the dudes fighting objects you know so it's it's nice that a woman gets that sort of ritualized description so anyway she also rode a horse given to her by the wife of the north Wind herself which is another cool detail
1: super cool detail. So Penthesilia entered the fray along with her posse and hacked her way through the Greek lines as her fierce Amazon companions were picked off like flies around her. Her bravery was so incandescent that another woman watching from the wall, Tisiphone, was suddenly galvanized with the desire to fight as well. You go girl! Yeah! The thing is, Tisiphone had no military training, but seeing Penthesilia fight, she said, friends, Let a heart of valor in our breasts awake. Let us be like our lords who fight with foes for fatherland, for babes, for us, and never pause for breath in that stern strife. For we, we women, be not creatures cast in diverse mold from men. To us is given such energy of life as stirs in them. Eyes have we like to theirs and limbs. One common light we look on and one common air we breathe. With like food are we nourished. Then, let us shrink not from the fray.
0: I included this speech because of the way Tisiphone talks about how women were equal, not cast in diverse mold from men, but the same. And that's actually kind of remarkable, especially for words conjured by a male ancient Greek writer. It's a very real statement of equality from a society where women were emphatically not treated as equals. Quintus was a Greek epic poet who lived probably around the 4th century AD. So he was old school.
1: Yeah, he was definitely old school. Anyway, at this speech, Tisiphone and a group of other women seize up anything that could be used as a weapon and would have run straight out into the battle if one older woman hadn't stood up and pointed out that Tisiphone and her friends actually had no military training like the awesome Penthesiliate did. And maybe they should actually sit this one out. And that's kind of what happens.
0: Which is a little bit
1: disappointing. It is a bit disappointing, but it does make you think later on about how much that knowledge would have served them in siege warfare, like we talk about in some of our earlier episodes.
0: Yeah, like in the Carthaginian siege, where it was basically all hands on deck. And I bet this was a situation in the ancient world a lot where everybody had to fight when there was a siege situation and the enemy was breaching the gates. So it was actually to a society's advantage to have all women trained in war. But a lot of people didn't do that because toxic masculinity... Well, codify gender roles. Yeah. So, meantime, Penthesilia went on wreaking havoc on the battlefield. Achilles had been hanging out in his tent, mourning the death of his friend, possibly his lover, Patroclus. But all the din Penthesilia had been raising finally got his attention.
1: And Achilles came out of his tent and faced Penthesilia. They taunted each other, Penthesilia daring him to face her, Achilles screaming back typical sexist invective about how women should never dare to threaten him when even Hector couldn't stand against him. Penthesilia hurled her javelin, but it shattered against his armor. Then Achilles threw his and impaled Penthesilia through her chest. He threw another javelin, one minute later that actually pins her to her horse.
0: Which just, you know, the horses don't fare well. It makes me sad.
1: It makes me sad too, but like totally overkill. Like if it's gone through her chest, do we really need a second one to pin her to her poor horse?
0: Right. Do we have to kill the horse? I just, you know, Achilles, you're chode.
1: After Patroclus, it's all downhill for Achilles.
0: Right. He just loses that humanizing element. He does.
1: Anyway. Just as Penthesilia
0: dies, Achilles
1: removes her helmet and falls instantly in love with her. He is suddenly overcome with grief at what he's done, and again, this is a quote from the very purple Quintus, Achilles' very heart was wrung with love's remorse to have slain a thing so sweet who might have borne her home his queenly bride to chariot glorious Pythia, for she was flawless, a very daughter of the gods, divinely tall and most divinely fair
0: too little, too late, dude. <laughs> Jeez. And there's no discussion about whether she would actually want to go back to Pythia with Achilles. Like maybe she wouldn't want to do that, but nobody mentions that. No, no. Clearly she would
1: have fallen in love with him because, you know, he's not problematic at all.
0: Right. Or maybe just what she wants isn't isn't even a thing that we should bother discussing um, because, because toxic masculinity, it's coming up a lot. It really is. So this is often presented as a tragic romantic scene. Achilles overcome with remorse, gently cradling Penthesilia as she breathes her last. Although according to some accounts, it's not really that romantic at all. In Robert Graves' version, he actually rapes her corpse. And I'm just going to read this. Oh, no. This is like, I should probably give this, you know, a trigger warning. This is going to be terrible, but I'm still going to give you this version of it because it's it's already there in the subtext. So I might as well just do it. Quote, Penthesilia, dead of profuse wounds, was despoiled of her arms by Prince Achilles, who, for love of that fierce white naked corpse, (laughs) necrophilia on her committed in the public view. Oh! Some gasped, some groaned, some bawled their indignation. Achilles, nothing cared, distraught by grief, because this is totally a thing that you do when you're grieving, it's normal, but suddenly caught their sighties obscene snigger and with one vengeful buffet to the jaw, dashed out his life. This was a fury few might understand, yet Penthesilia, hailed by Prince Achilles on the Elysian plain, this is the worst, paused to thank him for avenging her insulted womanhood with sacrifice.
1: Ew. It's so ridiculous. She's going to stop on her way to her eternal slumber to thank Achilles for, you know, murdering a guy who laughed while he was raping her because that's the worst thing that's happened to her today.
0: Right. The most upsetting thing that's happened to me today is that this guy laughed at you while you were having sex with my dead body.
1: I mean, that's something I'm going to stop on my eternal passage to the next plane to thank you for. Thank you for making sure that my rape was less. Of a joke? No. So you might have some idea, and I used to, that the ancient world was fundamentally more brutal than the modern, and that things have become steadily more enlightened as time has progressed. In this case, not true the ancient sources actually don't take this story all the way to necrophilia. The first mention of that comes from a version of the story that dates from the 12th century AD, which is probably what Graves was drawing from.
0: Yeah, and actually the ancient sources seem to repudiate that instinct towards the worst version of the story. Originally, this guy Thersites was the character who brings it up in the first place, laughing at Achilles for lusting after a corpse as Achilles cradles Penthesilea's dying body tenderly, because that's kind of Weird Achilles. Yeah. In those versions, Achilles kills Thersites with a single blow for even mentioning necrophilia, and he'd probably also punch Robert Graves, and I don't blame him.
1: No, I can't blame him either.
0: Right. So anyway, getting away from the horrible Achilles necrophilia thing and just talking about the Amazon myths overall, what does it all mean? And if you spend any time in a museum or delve into ancient Greek art and writings, you'll start seeing Amazons everywhere. I did. I started seeing Amazons everywhere. They're on vases, they're on friezes and shields and sarcophagi and votive offerings and cosmetic jars and blah, 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 ancient plays and epics. They're everywhere. It starts to look like the ancient Greek had a serious obsession with strong warrior women. And that is weird. To understand exactly how weird that is, we have to take a look at the lives and status of actual women in Greek society.
1: It's important to note that Greek society in ancient times was not a monolith. Ancient Greece was made up of lots of city-states, and each one had different rules. Some were more permissive toward women than others. For example, in Sparta, women were allowed to own property and drink wine, but the role of women in classical Athens is the most well-documented, so that's mainly what we'll be talking about here. In general... Women in ancient Greece had very little agency over their lives. Women had extremely limited property rights and were definitely not allowed to vote. So anyone who wants to hold up ancient Greece as the shining bastion of democracy should consider the fact that fully half of the population was denied voting rights. More if you count slaves of both sexes. Ancient
0: Greeks... Widely practiced infanticide, mostly by leaving unwanted babies out in the open to die of exposure. This was a lot more likely to happen to girls, like it did to Atalanta, who we talked about at the beginning of this episode. There's a quote from a man writing to his wife in the year 1 BC that I found. This is an actual letter that somebody sent to his wife. Quote, I am still in Alexandria. I beg and plead with you to take care of our little child, and as soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. In the meantime, if, good fortune to you, you give birth... If it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, expose it.
1: And I think that's so fascinating in mythology, as well as in culture, this idea of exposing a child, they have that because they believed it was wrong to kill a kid. They believed that like your family line and everything else would be
0: cursed. You'd be cursed by the gods if you killed a baby, but you can expose the baby. I mean, I think that there was also an element there of, you know, if they kill the baby, then its fate is sealed. But if they expose it, then maybe the gods could intervene and save it. And that you see that happening in the mythology all the time. I've read in places that this was kind of a rationale for, it we're like we're not killing the baby we're still giving it a chance although let's be honest not very big chance that a mother bear will happen along or the night king you never know or the night king or some wolves A typical girl in
1: ancient Greece, if she was allowed to live, wasn't usually formally educated. Instead, she got training from her mother in how to run a household. Technically, the marriageable age of girls was 14, but girls were sometimes married off as young as seven, usually to much older men. The average age of marriage for men was 30.
0: Kind of like in modern times, right?
1: Exactly. I feel like it's about there. I
0: feel like the last I look,
1: it was 29
0: for guys. Right. So it would be like guys that, you know, just getting married at the usual time they're getting married, but to 14 year olds. Yikes. Yeah. In ancient
1: Greece, girls and women got pretty much no say as to who they married.
0: And frequently the husband would be a relative. Oh. I know. The goal of marriage in ancient Greek society was to produce children and pass down property. And parents often wanted to keep this property in the family. Women couldn't technically own anything, so the only way they could keep their property in the family was to marry their girls to a relative. And this was especially true if the family had no sons. In that situation, families in ancient Greece would try to marry their daughters off to relatives like uncles and cousins, etc., whenever possible. And often In that situation, the nearest male relative was given first refusal for marrying a girl. Ew. Ugh. Yeah, although this did happen a lot. Like, we've talked about this in other episodes. There are a lot of women marrying their uncles. Yeah, and in
1: the upcoming arc that I'm working on, there's a lot of that and it's not in Greece.
0: So this is a thing that the Romans appropriated from the Greeks, marrying women to their uncles.
1: So after marriage, girls and women were expected to stay home and to bear children and spin and weave and tend to the household. Ideally, women weren't ever supposed to leave the house or interact with men in public, although this was more of a societal expectation than an actual law. But it was a strong societal expectation, so strong that if you were a woman, even having Having your name known widely in society was supposed to be a source of shame. In the history of the Peloponnesian War, Thucydides says, Great honor is hers whose reputation among males is least, whether for praise or blame.
0: This was so entrenched that in lawsuits, orators or ancient lawyers often tried hard to avoid naming women who were involved in their cases, referring to them by their relationships to men in their family instead. Mostly, the only women they'd refer to by name would be dead women, those of low status, and women on the opposing side.
1: In Aristotle's politics, and fair warning, reading Aristotle's politics will make you super ragey. So ragey. Aristotle says things that seem to me to be perfectly representative of what the ancient Greeks thought of women, including, quote, as regards the sexes, the male is by nature superior and the female inferior, the male ruler and the female subject, and the same must necessarily apply to all mankind.
0: Yeah, doesn't that make you ragey? Are you like ragey while you were reading that? Because I was ragey while you were reading that. I, I was very ragey. Like, no, no, Aristotle. Sit down. <laughs> yeah, no, Aristotle sit down, that's enough out of you. So the ideal, (laughs) the ideal woman in ancient Greece was a shut in someone who never left the home concerned only with hearth and family and too modest and ashamed to be in the same room with a man she isn't related to also silent whenever possible. Aristotle also says, quote, silence is a woman's glory. I mean, honestly, I think silence is Aristotle's glory. Oh,
1: he'd hate this podcast.
0: He would. He would hate it because we're two women talking. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) I just think that everything that I say is a protest against Aristotle because I'm talking. (laughs) So I have a question about all this. Why did these same men who think that women should be silent and in the home and never leave the house, why did they have an obsession with Amazons?
1: John Mann, in his book, Amazons, The Real Warrior Women of the Ancient World, says, quote, the Amazons symbolize the ultimate threat to the Greek masculine ideals. And one thing you'll notice if you look at enough Amazon art and storytelling is that it involves a lot of dead and dying women getting speared, stabbed, and beaten by manly, manly Greek heroes. So manly. So manly. In one depiction of Heracles and Hippolyta, he's shown pulling her hair and stomping on her foot. This is not heroic, Heracles. No, you never pull hair. Also, how badass is it that Hippolyta had long hair? She must have been like, I'm not worried about my hair in battle because no one's going to touch it.
0: Right, except Heracles because he's a giant douche canoe. I know. You shouldn't have given him your belt. He does not deserve the
1: belt pulling hair, stomping on feet. That is not someone who deserves the prize belt of Ares.
0: Or any of the other accessories, to be honest. Like, not the belt, not the matching shoes, not the bag. None of it. Not the
1: wolf's tooth necklace, not the lion skin or the Caledonian boar throw. None of it. None of it. You don't get any of it, Hercules. Sit down. Sit down, go home, eventually get poisoned by your wife.
0: Who you were cheating on anyway, jerk. <laughs> When Amazons appear in ancient Greek mythology, it's frequently so that they can be killed in a violent fashion by the hero in question. The warrior prowess of Amazons in these stories seems to exist mainly to prove the toughness of the Greek warriors they face. The stronger the Amazon, the more amazing the Greek hero must be for defeating her.
1: Adrian Mayer tells us that the ancient Greeks had initiation rites where, quote, young Greek boys overcame terrifying opponents, perhaps masked gorgons or other adversaries to prove their bravery. She goes on to cite an art historian, Susan Langdon, who suggests that Amazon stories may have played a role in initiation contests. There was definitely a belief in ancient Greece that true heroism could only be established in a clash with a foe of equal strength. So Amazons may have literally been used as the word foe for men to defeat, improving their own manhood. A story repeated, aggrandized, and elaborated on in the mythologies they were familiar with. And extrapolating from there, maybe that particular coming-of-age story made these men feel entitled to oppress the women around them.
0: Yeah, and in addition, Amazon stories could have sent a chilling message to women in Greek society. Don't try to rebel against your husband or your father or the other men in your lives. Greek men are the natural masters of women. Even these strong warrior women could didn't touch them, you're certainly no match for them. In other words, Amazon stories as a tool of oppression against ancient Greek women. But Adrian Mayer, who I consider the premier Amazon scholar of our age and also an Amazon goddess,
1: I was going to say, definitely an Amazon goddess.
0: Right, would tell us that the picture is actually a lot more complicated than that. And in her book, she makes a really interesting point. Quote, in the Greek myths, Amazons always die young and beautiful. A short, splendid life and violent death in battle was the perfect heroic ideal in myth. Indeed, this destiny was what every great Greek hero craved for himself. The beautiful death was supposed to guarantee eternal fame and glory. One cannot help but notice that in the Greek myths and in semi-historical accounts, nearly every Amazon we know by name displays exemplary heroic attributes and receives honor by dying heroically in battle. And she contrasts this with the fate of various Greek heroes, which I've just got to read to you. Quote, these non-Greek women actually surpass the Greek mythic heroes in the manner of their deaths. Despite their vaunted courage and might, not one great Greek hero manages to achieve a glorious death on the battlefield. Perseus, the slayer of Medusa, dies of old age. Bellerophon, thrown by his flying horse Pegasus into a thorn bush, ends up a blind, lame hermit. Theseus, athens founding hero and all around gross person shoved off a cliff by an elderly king thank you whoever that elderly king is (laughs) you've done us all a service odysseus accidentally done in by his son stabbed with a stingray spine the superhero heracles with the great pecs and the penchant for belts perishes ignominiously wrapped in a poison tunic a gift from his wife um maybe she was totally on to his accessory obsession
1: Baby, what a great way to do him in. Here
0: you go, babe. Here's an awesome tunic to go with your belt. (laughs) (laughs) The mighty Achilles is felled by an arrow in the heel, shot from behind. Jason, leader of the Argonauts, crushed in his sleep by a rotten beam from his old ship, the Argo. So viewed this way,
1: the way the Amazons died, heroically, with courage, never running from battle, would have been recognized as a sign of honor and strength by the people in ancient Greece, something to be emulated and not a sign of weakness and defeat. One thing that continually crops up in Amazon stories and art is that they're almost always depicted as the equals of the heroes. They may be killed by a lot of Greek heroes, but the heroes certainly never patronize them by going easy on them or make gentlemanly claims that they could never fight a woman. They go all out because they respect the Amazons as worthy foes. And it's true that as much as Amazon art shows women losing, it also shows them winning. Greek friezes, frescoes, murals, vases, and other art is littered with Greek as well as Amazon dead. It's mostly in fights against famous heroes that the Amazons always lose. So, the Amazon myth was complex, possibly a tool of oppression, but there's also a weird kind of respect there, and Amazon myths may even reveal a seam of ambivalence among ancient Greek men about their own oppressive society.
0: You can see that ambivalence in Quintus's account of Tisiphone, inspired by Penthesilia to fight in the Trojan War herself, quote, For we, we women, be not creatures cast in diverse mold from men. Eyes have we like to theirs, and limbs. One common light we look on, and one common air we breathe. With like food are we nourished. And you can almost hear Shylock's speech from a merchant of Venice in that. You
1: can also see a certain weird ambivalence about oppressing women in this quote we already read to you from Herodotus' account of the daughter of Ares, where he says that she established laws, quote, by virtue of which she led the women out into contests of war, but upon the men she fastened humiliation and slavery. I find it interesting that Herodotus could clearly recognize the common fate of ancient Greek women as humiliation and slavery when it was men who were consigned to it.
0: Yeah, look in the mirror, Herodotus.
1: Another thing to notice is that there's all this romantic tension in Amazon's stories. Before he turns on her, Heracles and Hippolyta get along well, recognize each other as equals, and almost seem attracted to each other. Achilles falls in love with Penthesilea at first sight, in this excruciating moment before she dies.
0: And of course, there are stories like the Sarmatian founding myth and Atalanta's story, where the women have agency in determining their own lives, and where the sex is vigorous, athletic, and between two equals. The ancient Greeks seem fascinated by that. It's almost as if through Amazon myths, ancient Greek men were romanticizing and even longing for the one thing they couldn't get at home, enthusiastic consent.
1: Although I find that really interesting because in some of the ancient Greek plays and stuff, women are definitely portrayed as creatures that need a lot of sex.
0: Like ravening sex
1: beasts? Yeah. in some of them, if you look at Lysistrata, the women decide they're just totally going to go on a sex break to get the men to stop fighting. And the women miss the sex just as much as the men do. I
0: mean, isn't there a thing where the guys are just like, yeah, well, you women are totally not going to be able to hold out because your sex drives are just too out of control. Exactly. And the women are like, just watch us. Right. So it's kind of like a battle of wills who can hold out for the sex. But I have to say, though, in real life, they're marrying 10 year old girls and 14 year old girls off to 40 year old men or whatever. I mean, how much enthusiastic consent can there be in that situation?
1: I mean, there can't be. And you must also think by the time they're 25 or 30, their husband is pretty old. Yeah, they probably do have wandering eyes at this point. If you're seven and your husband is now 50, by the time you're 27, your husband's going to be 70 and you're still pretty young and good looking. Ugh, gross. This is terrible. So Amazon myths were super complex. But did we say Amazon myths? Forget we said that. That is totally wrong. Totally wrong. Because the Amazons were very, very real. And in our next episode, we'll go into detail on the real-life warrior women who inspired the Amazon myths.
0: So that's it for today. We'll be back in two weeks. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan or on Facebook and Instagram at Ancient History Fangirl. Also, we have a website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com. And if you're into
1: what we do and would like to help out the podcast, one easy thing you can do, and you know, it takes like two seconds, is to leave us a review. It helps us get seen in in the algorithms and each one gives us a personal boost. I mean, sometimes, you know, Jenny and I have a little cry over how nice you guys are to us. Thank you. I do not cry. I cry. I do cry at the commercial where the dogs are in a cage. So...
0: are you talking about?
1: Have you not seen the one with like the Sarah McLaughlin music? That's an old reference.
0: Oh, that's a really old reference. All right. I, I cry sometimes at commercials, guys. We love reviews. And if you'd really like to help us out, we do also have a Ko-Fi fund, coffee fund, Ko-Fi fund. I do this every time I get baffled by the pronunciation of this website. Just head over to our website, Ancient History Fangirl. Find the button on the lower left corner of the homepage that says buy us a latte and kick us a few bucks. It really helps us keep the lights on and keep going i going.
1: Also, a thing we want to start doing is shout outs. And this is a little difficult because we typically record these really far ahead of launch. So it's kind of hard to shout out people with such a time delay, but we still think it's important. So you'll have to bear with us if you said something to months ago and you're only hearing it now.
0: Yeah, definitely. We're recording this episode in early August, and it'll probably go up like a month from now, but we don't care. So who are we shouting out today, Jen? We want to shout
1: out some people who've given us some five star reviews on iTunes. This is a review we had from Mark. Day, who also hosts the Best Sell Experiment podcast, which is brilliant if you're a writer, a great tool and resource. And he gave us a five star review that says, like the cool history teachers you wish you had at school, conversational, fun, and so full of juicy historical and human details that you'll need to listen to each episode at least twice.
0: Thank you so much, everyone. Yeah. So thank you, everyone who's left us reviews and everyone who's donated to our Ko-Fi slash coffee fund and everyone we're chatting with on Twitter. We love you all. so much and instagram and facebook thank you guys so much